Amen. What a blessing that we can gather together like this today in worship, celebrate the gift of children and commission parents to do their job of making disciples at home. Thank you, Eddie and praise team for helping lead us in worship. Continue to pray as we seek the person that God would have us to lead in our worship ministry. One of the things I love in a parent commissioning service like today is that we get to focus a little bit more on the job that God has given parents. He's made parents the primary disciple makers. He's given that job to you as moms and dads. But we as a church family get to come alongside of you and help in that process. We get to equip moms and dads and husbands and wives to do that good work that you're doing at home. Uh, Part of our approach at Lawndale is one of our core values is family equipping. We, We believe that God has called us as a church family to equip families. And so we have a next generation's pastor, Kevin Wiseman. We're putting a team around him to focus on helping families. And so we have some people already in some of those roles. And we'll be giving you a couple of more people to uh, approve as well, to add to that next generation team in the next couple of weeks. But that will consist of a college director, an assistant student pastor, an assistant uh, children's and family pastor, and a next generation girls director. So again, we we believe uh, in the place that God's given the family and want to help families, not only in our church, but in our city. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Today, we're going to talk about the church and gender. If you notice the flow of the text in 1 Timothy, you see that God has told us to protect sound doctrine, to believe what is true, what he has revealed in his word, and then he tells us the way that we're going to be most effective in our work is to pray. That's how we're going to get the gospel out. That's the primary work, prayer, And then God enables us to do that work. And as you move toward the end of chapter 2, where we're going to read right now, he's speaking specifically to men and to women. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, 1 Timothy 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You may be seated. And let's go to our great God again in prayer. Father, as we come to this text of Scripture, we pray for wisdom, we pray for help, we pray that we would understand what it is that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down for our instruction. May we take it to heart. May we see it as from your hand. And I pray that you would equip us for every good work. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness that we can be the men and women you created us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
God is good, and what He says is good. When we look at a text of Scripture like this, sometimes it seems so countercultural that it almost has this, wait a minute, is that really in the Bible? Does God really expect that out of us? After the creation of the world, we know the fall took place. Adam and Eve sinned. And since the fall, the world's been a very confusing place to live. I don't think we see any less confusion with gender than we see in every other area of life right now. And so what do we do when we're confused? We should come back to the source of truth, God himself, and what he has revealed in Scripture. And in the beginning, God created gender. I wanted this up on the screen this morning because usually I'm, I'm wanting you to turn to certain texts, and that's okay. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 1, verse 27. We'll come back to 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I wanted you to see this very clearly this morning, what God's original intention is, because it stands out so clearly all throughout Scripture. Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. From the very beginning, when God created humanity, He intentionally made us male and female. Masculinity is good. Femininity is good. Parents, as your children are growing up, it's good to be able to say, God made you to be a little girl. What a gift from God that he made you to be a girl and enjoy that, celebrate that, raise her to be a godly woman. And then even with our boys, we, we want to affirm for them what a wonderful thing that God has done in making you a little boy. That is God's design. That is his doing. And you raise him up to be a godly man. Now, as we go through the sermon this morning, the sermon, we're going to talk through what manhood and womanhood is. But I think if I were to sum it up, it's carrying out the instructions that God has given us as men and women. What has God said men should do? What has God said women should do? Manhood is carrying out God's instructions for what he's told men to do. Womanhood is carrying out God's instructions for what he's called women to do. Jesus, in the first century, as he took on human flesh and came to earth and was asked many questions, even about marriage. Where did he go to clarify what manhood and womanhood is and even what marriage is? Well, back to the beginning. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Male and female, without question, is God's idea. He made us directly tied to who He is. He made us in His image. And together, because we are diverse, and also because we are one, we can more adequately reflect the image of God, His unity and His diversity. God is one. And yet he exists eternally in three, uh, in three persons. It makes sense. God makes himself known in all creation. And so a part of his creation is us. And he would make himself known in, through these two genders. I like how Susan Hunt in her book Spiritual Mothering puts this. 
Man's aloneness was not good because he was created in the image of triune God. Now, hold there for just a second. Do you remember with me in creation? God created thing after thing. He made the skies. He made the universe. And after each thing he made, what did he say? It was good. But then he created the man. And you remember what he said? That, that, that's very generous. Somebody said, it is very good. She's not married. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but seriously, he said, it is not good, right? Now, he wasn't referring to the man himself. I thought I might even get a few amens from that one. But, but he was referring to the fact that he made it man to have a complimentary person like him with him. So it's not good that the man is alone. Now, follow with me the rest of Susan Hunt's uh, quote. The man needed one who was equal but different so that the complementarity of their relationship could reflect the unity and diversity of the Godhead. No wonder the enemy has targeted gender. He is always about distorting the very nature of God. He has always been about stealing glory from God. And when we as a church, we begin to lay gender aside, then we are distorting the very nature of God. What he intended to proclaim his glory, male and female, should be lived out just as he intended. Now, Paul calls out men and women in his first letter to Timothy. Just like other places of Scripture, there there are specific times that God says, men... And then he gives us what we need. And then he says, women, and then he gives the ladies what they need. This is one of those moments as we continue reading through and seeing how the church should behave in the household of God. How the church should function. God gives us first the idea for men. So verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. We're going to go really big today. We're going to go completely against the grain of culture. What you're going to hear today, you're not going to see on any sitcom. You're not going to hear probably from very many university professors today. But what you are going to hear, and my hope and my prayers, that you're going to hear the very words of God for what He has called us to do. This this is a major battleground right now. You know it. We, we read news stories every day of, of issues where parents are being caught in the middle of, my child may not completely understand their gender, so how am I supposed to handle that? We live in a very confusing world. And I'm less concerned, and I hope you are too, I'm less concerned with breaking glass ceilings. I'm more concerned with breaking God's commands. What's God told us to do? How should we function as a church family? Sharon James in her book, Gender Ideology, has a couple of things that I think are helpful for us. She said, to challenge the human reality of the male-female distinction is revolutionary. Even in a confusing world like we live in today, it still, it it, it boggles the mind. It's hard for some of us older folks to even imagine that we're struggling with gender and the kind of issues that are coming out today and that there could possibly be 
more than two genders and much less hundreds of different kinds of genders. That, that, that's completely foreign for us. So she goes on to say, where did this idea come from? It's useful to see how it arose from the convergence of the sexual revolution and the cultural revolution. Behind, she continues, these radical and destructive movements lurk the malevolent philosophy of Frederick, Frederick Nietzsche. His philosophy was based on the premise that God is dead. If God is dead, then gender doesn't matter. If God doesn't exist, gender doesn't matter. So if someone who is an atheist comes along and they say, well, I, I don't think there's any difference between men and women. Well, we can understand why, because they have no authority in their lives. But we as followers of Christ, our allegiance is to him. And as we've walked out what he has said to us, we've seen the beauty of it. So when you talk to a, a man who's walking with God and he's enjoying God, living out his commands, what else would he do? Even though he may go through difficult times, even though some may not understand, what else would he do? And then you see a woman who's walking with God and living out his commands and, and it's, what else would I do? What, what fulfillment, what purpose, what meaning is there? When you peel back the layers of where, we're, where we are today, it's scary to see the kinds of steps that have been taken to bring us where we are. And you think about the roots and you pull back into some of the sources of a godless philosopher who, and many others who have contributed to our idea that makes no sense at all that there is no such thing as gender or gender really doesn't matter. I would say to you, as one man said, if we believe what the Bible says about creation, we believe what the Bible says about the virgin birth, we believe what the Bible says about the crucifixion and the resurrection, why wouldn't we believe what the Bible says about gender? In chapter 2 of verse 8, Paul says, I desire then in every place the men should pray. Now think about that. Men are called to live as God intended. Men must live as God intended. Prayer is that element that probably is the greatest indicator of our relationship with God. If you never talk to God, there's a question about whether you know God. If, if you say, I know someone, but you never talk to them, it's kind of like, well, do you really know that person? Prayer is a good indicator. Prayer is a good indicator of a church that is experiencing revival are they calling on God are they talking to God are they worshiping him are they living in relationship to him and in that same way on an individual basis men are to pray in the context of the church gathering they should lead out they should be the most dependent on God they should be the most seeking God because they know how inadequate they are for the task that God's given them and he told them when they pray, they should pray lifting holy hands. Now, I think the emphasis in that phrase, lifting holy hands, is on the holy part. There are all kinds of positions that people pray in. Sometimes they pray with lifted hands. Sometimes they pray kneeling. Sometimes they pray standing. Sometimes they pray laying. Sometimes they pray walking. It's not the position of the body that's important. It's the position of the heart. Are you walking with God? Are you living a life of repentance? Are you living a life of holiness, wanting to please God in all that you do? Men, lift up holy hands. Don't just lift up hands and say, I'm praying. Make sure your heart's right with God. Holy hands, walking with him, loving him, living an obedient life. 
The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, Psalm 66, 18, God will not hear me. Where do men struggle oftentimes? It's usually in harshness, in anger. And when men are being harsh or they're living out anger, then it affects the whole household. It affects your house. And that's why uh, even in Colossians, God instructed men, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. And, and even in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. One of the greatest ways that, that we hurt our families is through anger. Because somehow, instead of doing the hard work of building relationships, we think we can get what we want through anger. Because we're big and we're mean and we're strong. And we actually accomplish the exact opposite of what we would want to happen in our homes. Men, lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. One of the things I love about Lawndale each Sunday morning is I get to gather with a group of men who pray. We have deacon teams who, who will meet with me and will pray over our services. And that's one of the most empowering, encouraging times that I have because I know these men, are they're walking with God and they're coming together to seek the help of God so that when the people of God gather, we worship and we're equipped and we're able to be sent to go and do the work of God. Men, live life as God intended. Pray. Now, another thing I see from the text, if the church is going to function as God intended, it also says that men should teach. Now, it's saying it through the back door, right? Because in verse 12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain, remain quiet. We'll come back and dig into that text a little bit more. But just by its very nature, it's telling us that men should be the primary teachers in a church family. There is a limitation that's taking place here. There is a, a, an element in which God is saying, I want male and female to be so clear that I'm saying only the men should preach from the pulpit, that only men should be the, the leaders, the pastors, the elders, the overseers in a church. It clarifies for the world that, yes, there is sameness, there is equality, but there are differences, and the differences aren't bad. That's where we've bought into the lie of the enemy, that if you carry out the women's role in the Bible, then you're less. That's not as important. That's wrong. That's a lie of the devil. That's straight from the pit of hell because the devil does not want us to live out male and female. And so God has always put limits, hasn't he? In the very beginning in the garden, were there not limitations where God said, I'll tell you what, you can have all this other stuff. It's beautiful fruit to eat, but there's only one tree I'm saying don't eat from. And where do we find Adam and Eve spending their time? I mean, when you pull up in Genesis chapter 3, they're hanging out by the one tree, making themselves available to partake of something that God said no. And of course, you know the story. 
and the transgression that transpired from that. Even Jesus took on limitations. When he took on human flesh, he was denying himself the glory that he was receiving in heaven. And he did not grasp equality with his Father, but he emptied himself and he came to earth in the form of a human. He limited himself. So this is not a stretch of the imagination. This is not something that God himself has not done. It's not something that is out of the question. It's very much in line with this God who created the world for a purpose and a reason. And he has a divine design. And it's it's, it's we people. We have the problem. Do we have enough trust in God to believe that he's good and that what he says is good and that if we obey it, he will be honored and glorified and we will have purpose and meaning? Now, this teaching in the context of the church, again, I, I, I'm telling you this morning that uh, as we see this text, it just seems so clear that God has reserved the office of pastor for men. Even if one of the largest churches in America begins to ordain women for pastors, that's not what God's Word says. And churches are, let me put it differently, the culture is paying a huge price because the church is not standing on God's Word. I would say to you, it's not that the culture has a problem with gender that's the biggest problem. It's that the church has a problem with gender. And if we're doing our job, then God will do his in the world. We become that light. We become that example if we follow God's design. But when we step out of God's design, we begin to do harm in the world around us, more damage. I would say the church is complicit in this gender confusion that's taking place in our world today. Because we've not come back to Scripture and said, this is where we stand. This is what God has said to us. There are two lines of thought, even within churches today. Some will hold to what is called an egalitarianism thought. And that is, we're created equal and there's really no difference between men and women. Now, what, what I'm proposing to you, what I think the text of Scripture teaches us, is a complementarianism where we're equal but different. I, I mean, does not even nature itself suggest such things? Is not that the reasoning that Paul gives in marriage being one man, one woman? Does not even nature itself teach us this? The way God made the world, the way God made men and women, his creation in, in some respects is so complex. Think about the complexity of his creation. Those who struggle with the fact that God created the world and spoke it into existence, I, I, I think how else could it have happened? How could... How could one person evolve out of, out of some kind of nothingness, out of some kind of explosion, out of some kind of, of, of cell or amoeba? How could one person with all the complexity evolve out of, out of that? But then you multiply that many times over to say, no, it wasn't just one person. There had to be another person who evolved who would perfectly fit this one person who had evolved. Do you see the complexity of that? Do you see the foolishness of thinking there's not a designer? Complexity and yet simplicity. Man and woman, husband and wife, leadership and fellowship. I mean, complexity but yet simplicity. That's the kind of God that we serve. Men must live as God intended. Pray, teach in that 
corporate setting in, in worship services and men and women are gathered together and then lead in the context of that church gathering. I, I think our homes are little pictures of the greater household of God. That's why sometimes I'll, I'll look at men and say men, to a man, you're the pastor of your family. Your home, your, your house is, is, a, is a little picture of what God's household is. Learn how to lead in your house so that you can learn how to lead in the bigger household. And as we think about men who are leading in that context of home, they oftentimes get off course. And so when I'm teaching about marriage, I talk about a couple of extremes that men can go to. Some men are the lording leader where it's almost abusive because they're, they're running over everybody in the house and they're telling everybody what to do. That is not biblical leadership. Some people get this idea when you say men should lead in their homes that, well, that means that it's caveman-like and he grunts. Well, there may be a little grunt in any way that goes along with, with that. But it, it, they, they paint this ugly Neanderthal kind of picture and we, we're painting a picture of Jesus here. How did Jesus lead? I mean, he was a loving servant leader. That's the kind of lead. So, so don't be that lording leader that becomes abusive to your household. And, and, and at the same time, don't go to that other extreme and be that lazy leader where you just kind of turn everything over to, to your wife or to your kids and y'all just make it all your own decisions. You do whatever you want to do. Be that loving leader who's engaged and takes responsibility I've always thought about Adam and Eve in the garden. And again, keep going back to the beginning here. But remember, when, when sin entered in and God came anthropomorphically walking back in the garden, and, and I've always thought God should have. Here, here's me telling God what he should have done. God should have said, Eve, what have you done? I mean, that would have only been fair. I mean, she was first in the offense, Right. At the very least, God should have said, Adam and Eve, where are you? But he didn't do that, did he? What did he say? Adam, where are you? He, he, he put Adam as the responsible party. They both were culpable and both sinned and both had consequences. But God said, Adam, I'm, I'm, I'm making you the leader. You're, you're responsible for what happens. And men, the the health of your family is dependent on you. If your family is unhealthy, I, I, I think God comes back and he, he calls out you, husband, father, where are you? And I think when our churches are unhealthy, God comes back to the men and says, I, I made you responsible. You're, you're equal and, and everybody's uh, culpable if they're not carrying out God's design for living life out within the church and the home. But men, God's put you as responsible. I think revival could take place if men began to step up and lead again. Not the lording leader. I'm talking about the loving leader that's engaged with his wife, who's engaged with his kids, who's engaged in his walk with God, his relationship with God. Servant leadership. Tony Evans says some things that only Tony Evans can say in the way that he says them. Listen to what he said. The problem in marriages today isn't that we have too many women who don't want to submit. The problem is that we have too many men who don't want to submit to the headship of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, 
What is missing for men in the church are spiritual fathers like the Apostle Paul. Without spiritual fathers to set the thermometer, we have an assembly line turning out a feminized version of what it means to be a man and calling him nice and helpful rather than strong and responsible. Without the older generation pouring into the younger generation, what would we expect of a younger generation? Just being raised without any kind of sense of gender or any kind of roles in marriage or in church. And so it takes God, God expects men to step up and and to disciple the younger men and older women to disciple the younger women. I'm so grateful for that call that God has placed on my wife that normally on Sunday on Sunday night, she's teaching the women because she's helping to equip women to say, God has given you a beautiful assignment. God's called you to something far greater than what the world ha- could ever conceive. And the enemy wants to deceive you to think if you fulfill a godly role as a woman, a biblical role as a woman, that somehow you're getting cheated out of something. And even though the ladies nor the men will meet tonight, next Sunday night, I hope that a lot of you will come back on Sunday evening. And ladies, that you'll be a part of that that time with my wife and some other women and men alongside of us pastors here in the worship center. We've lost oftentimes what it really means to be men. And on this Mother's Day, why would we not be more committed than ever before, men. When we look at the godly women that are beside us and the little girls that are growing up beside us, in church, as you look around and you see the people in our congregation, why would we not say, God, God, help us to be the men that you created us to be? Kevin DeYoung, and probably the best little book on men and women in the church that you'll read. It's a small volume, won't take you long to read it. I commend it to you, men and women in the church. He said this, complementarianism is often caught before it's taught. And men are the ones who do the most to make complementarianism look like catching the flu or winning the lottery. Men, being married to you, does your wife think, man, this is like catching the flu? (laughs) Or does she look at you and say, man, I won the lottery? So guys, DeYoung goes on to say, let's not make the heartbeat of our message women sit down when it should be men stand up. That's the greater message, I think, of what 1 Timothy and the whole of Scripture is trying to say. So let's, let's make this clear before I move on in the text. Manhood and womanhood. I like how John Piper has described the difference here in a book called What's the Difference? He says about manhood. At The heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. That's counterculture because men are taught to use women, to get what you can, to step on, to devalue. That's not biblical manhood. And then he says about womanhood, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. How how can we become godly men and women? How can we come back and, and say, this is what God's called us to do, carry out these responsibilities 
We can't do it by ourselves. We, we need hearts that are surrendered to God. And it brings us back to what the Apostle Paul said in chapter 1. You remember our, our catechism that we've been practicing? Let's, let's do it again this morning. I'll say the first part, and as a congregation, you come in and give me the second part. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Excellent class. Let's do that one more time. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And of course, Paul added on of whom I am foremost, right? And we, this morning, if we're going to be right with God, have to understand, God, I'm not where you want me, but I want to be where you created me to be. Help me. On my own, I can't do that. But Christ Jesus came to save sinners and to help sinners to be what God created us to be. So men must live as God intended. Let's look at the second thing this morning. Women must live as God intended. Let's go back to our text in verse 9. Likewise also that women, he's called out the men, now he's, he's talking to the women. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Oftentimes our culture wants women to draw attention to themselves. So all the fashion trends, all the ways that we behave, our social media posts are oftentimes to draw attention to ourselves. And God's saying, work more on the inside than you're working on the outside. God sees the heart, and the heart then will lead us to do what is right on the outside. If women worked as much on the inside as they worked on the outside, man, we might experience revival. Now, we men don't mind you ladies working on what's on the outside. But we know it's the will of God that you would invest so much more on working on the outside. I believe that's what Paul's talking about. Don't, don't seek to draw this attention to yourself. Seek to, to have God's attention in your heart so that you can grow to become the woman that he had, would have you to be. The culture's teaching you a whole different message. Come back to the scriptures and, and look at modesty. Look at self-control. Look at what's on the inside. But not only the godliness that he's already described for the men, holy hands, but also the good works. Verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. A lady who follows Christ should look different than a woman who doesn't follow Christ. A woman who follows Christ dresses differently than someone who doesn't care what God thinks. It's different. And it moves to her to serve and to love God and to love people and to carry out His commands. That's the good works that are there. Those who profess godliness, it should be seen not only in how they dress, but it should be seen in how they live. They're good works. Notice on in the text, in verse 11, it gets even a little bit more tricky, doesn't it? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, just as men have things there to carry out, women have things to carry out. First, think of this in the positive. Let a woman learn. Now, that was a little bit of a different approach because oftentimes women weren't looked at as 
did they need to learn? Did they need to grow? And the text, let a woman learn. She's got to keep growing in her faith. It's a, it's a positive thing in the context of the church gathering. She should be there. She should be growing. She should be discipling. The older women should disciple the younger women. The men and women should meet together in, in worship and in small groups because God values women and what they contribute and what they do. And I can't even imagine a church without the women who are serving and modeling and discipling and doing all the ministry that women do. The word quietly doesn't mean that she can't speak. That's not what that word means. It's the same word back in chapter 2 in verse 2 when it says, For kings and all are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That's the same word. It's without causing a storm, an uproar, issues, without trying to dominate and be in control, let a woman learn quietly and submissively that she has a role that God has given her that's a beautiful role. It's not a degrading role. It's not an inferior role. It's on par with the man's role. It's just a different role here. And so just like oftentimes I'm telling men, don't be the lording leader, don't be the lazy leader, be the loving leader, I'm telling wives, don't be the competing helpmate. God created Eve to be a helpmate, to come alongside of the man. He needed help. Don't be a competing helpmate. Uh, Who's going to control? Who's going to win this? Who's going to get the credit? Don't be a competing helpmate. But at the same time, don't be that complacent helpmate where you don't get involved and give your opinion, give your ideas, and contribute. Because ultimately, you want to be a contributing helpmate. You're equal, and God means for you to speak into the life of your husband and your family. God means for you to speak into the life of the church family. This is not a quiet without word. This is a role of learning and understanding the role that God has given women. So quietly and submissively. I I, I guess even as you look further here, you'd get his rationale for this, right? He says, he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. That's really two different commands, isn't it? To teach, and I think over a man qualifies that to teach, or to exercise authority over a man. Those are, those are the two things that are put together that Paul says that's women should not serve as pastors within the church. Some people might say, well, you know, every time I see the pastors, I don't see a woman up there. It's not because we don't value women, it's it's not because women don't serve in different roles and aren't even staff members. It's just that leadership role and decision making and authority, God said that's part of manhood. And if we as a church will live out manhood and womanhood, it shows the world what God intended for our lives. Again, it's it's a wonderful thing. It's not an ugly thing. The world is who has made it an ugly thing. Even when he tries to describe why, he doesn't give cultural reasons. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's because women are weaker or women aren't as smart. But he comes back to God. He says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's a creation order. God said, I made man first and then woman. In the order of creation, God was telling us what he had designed. And then he said, secondly, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now again, it's not even that women are more susceptible to sin. 
it's, it's more of a role reversal that took place. Here's this woman being tempted by the serpent to eat the fruit of the tree. Go back and read that, Genesis 3. And the man is right there beside her. It's not like he's on the other side of the garden. He's there. He's meant to protect. He's meant to provide. He's meant to, to be responsible. And instead, he just watches. And she eats, and then she gives him some. I, I don't know what was going on in his mind. Maybe it was, if she sins, that's her business. Or that'll be her fault. Or she'll get the consequences of that. But remember, just as we've already said, God came back and he said, Adam. Because he held Adam accountable, responsible for what had happened there. So there was a role reversal. Instead of Adam being the leader and the protector, he left her out there. She was deceived and then he just blatantly disobeyed and he ate the fruit. And in that role reversal, we see... Sin enter in, and we see further complications where now she will desire to rule over the husband. On in Genesis 3, and he will work and labor, and it will be at the sweat of his brow. There are consequences that enter in because they chose not to follow God's design. Paul is not putting women down here. He is lifting them up and saying, God created you for a reason. Live out his purpose. And when you live out his purpose, he's going to give you the kind of peace and fulfillment that only he can give. And so the third thing I would say, not only should women learn, but they should mother. Now in the context of the church gathering, some women physically bear children. This childbearing that, hap- that he's referring to in verse 15. Because we live in a fallen world, not every woman has kids physically. So think about first those who have children physically. God has given you a a particular role to nurture and to disciple. And where would so many of us be if our moms had not taught us and invested in us and mothered us and been godly women in our lives? It, It doesn't save these moms that they were like that, but it 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 saves their role that God originally give them gave them. They weren't discarded because they were deceived. God just says your greatest influence is going to continue. It's going to continue through childbearing. Now, some have physical children. Some have physical children and spiritual children. Not only are you impacting the next generation that you biologically had, but you're influencing other men and women from the role that God's given you. And some don't have biological children. They're only spiritual mothers. They pour into the next generation And I think about some of the godly women in our church, biologically and spiritually. Some of the ladies who who have not had children, whether it's singleness or whether it's medical reasons. And I see them pouring into the next generation in children and students and college ministry. What an amazing, beautiful thing. That oftentimes the world may not come along and pat a woman on the back for being a godly wife a godly mother, a godly spiritual mother. But I do believe that one day when a woman stands before God and she's fulfilled the role that he's given her, that she's going to get the accolades, she's going to get the affirmation, she's going to get the approval that it's the approval of all approvals. So what am I saying? Mothering 
for Mother's Day and for this text is a beautiful assignment from God himself. So many of our moms have given sacrificially. You've invested in others. You've modeled submission. You've modeled faith and love and holiness and self-control like verse 15 says. And God's given his help through you. You have been the one that this God who gives help, he's given his help through you. Again, Susan Hunt wrote this in her book, Spiritual Mothering. As we reflect on how God ministers to us as our helper, we begin to understand the strength and beauty of our, that is, a woman's design. When, ladies, as you come alongside your husbands, children, grandchildren, spiritual children, God's given you the ability to change the world. He's not thrown away male and female. When a woman follows Christ, it magnifies her opportunity to influence the world as she follows his good design. So this morning, I, I, I want to I point out, if you really want to experience like, life like God intended, it's here. I'm blessed to serve in a church where so many women are already doing that. I hope this is affirmation for you. And those who are struggling even today with thinking, wait a minute, does the text really say that? Does the Bible really say that? Go back to the text. Study it. Some of the blessings I get as your pastor is not that you say, Rodney, I agree with everything you say. I'm not infallible. But I do believe this book is infallible. And one of the blessings I get as a pastor is those who say, you know, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to go back and search the scriptures. I'm going to pray over that. And as God does his good work in all of our lives, let's let this be our ultimate source of authority when it comes to the church and gender. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful for your word. We would have no idea to li- how to live if you had not given it to us. We would just live in our own way. We would do what's right in everybody's own eyes. But you out of your greatness and out of your glory, out of your generosity, you've taught us how to live as men and women. I pray that we would settle for nothing less than what you've revealed through your word. May we wrestle with what is true. May we come to the text and pray and say, God, God, show me, God, teach me. Thank you for godly women of old, like Sarah. Thank you for godly women today that serve so faithfully. And I pray that you'll call out another generation of men and women, young men, young women, who come to your word and say, God, I surrender all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.